Um, and then some like green chilies. And that's what I did. Okay. Put some of my hot okay. sauce in it. It was really good. Yeah. That's amazing. It does feel like these chilies are the archetypes of Onions. who we are as people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. I'm Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. Today and the next episode, we will be celebrating Black History Month. Specifically in today's episode, Jacob is going to bring us something super fun and pop and culture. Then in our academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Family Structure, Risks, and Racial Stratification in Poverty. And then in good or bad advice, we will be discussing conversations about Encanto from TikTok creators. You guys know how much I love TikTok and I love Encanto. So together, oh my goodness. It's the best of both worlds. It's all of the worlds combined that are fantastic. <laughs> if you have advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us all at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. Also, wherever you listen to our podcast, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, whatever it is, please rate and review it and also smash gently of course that subscribe button <laughs> but before we get to all of this episode's good and amazingness how are you guys doing what's up you know just staring down the barrel of turning 40 oh <laughs> that, that's what's oh. up in my life <laughs> that's um, <so> funny <laughs> I don't know. That was just a funny reaction to me. Um, no, well, I'm I already 40 and it completely feels like 39. So <laughs> I love that you're feeling it, but um, it's okay. I don't know. I feel like 40 is like this psychological thing that's even more so mm. than I was 30. Sure. Well, maybe too, because it's just like we're year two of the pandemic. I'm just like, oh, am I? I'm old Time now. is dragging. Yes. yes. You've, you've aged a lot in two years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not you, like collectively, we. Collectively, we, yeah. <laughs> So semester's kicking off, trying to get back in that routine. And so in Iowa, you have multiple coats. You have your like jacket that you'll wear when it's like 30 degrees. You have your winter coat that you wear when it's like in the teens and 20s. And then you have a tundra coat oh. that you wear when it doesn't get above zero. Oh. And this is going to be a tundra coat week. So that also makes me feel more oh, old when it's really gosh. cold outside. Hashtag tundra coat week. You don't have to live week. there. That's true. <laughs> Your zip code is optional. Here, oh, but boy. also, like, I don't know where I would do my job anywhere else. Sure, and sure. I mean, there are universities in but... every state. <laughs> yeah, but not like a couple of not, therapy programs. And right, right. Not, also, not ones that have like cost of living that is here and all our friends. Sure. That's a problem, too. We have lots of friends in Iowa and we don't want to leave them. But I love Iowa, just not Good. this time of the year. Okay. Well, that's good. I don't know. Keep gaslighting yourself. <laughs> yourself? I just think I don't have tons of friends in Dallas and I still wouldn't go north. <laughs> Tundra coat week is, oh my goodness. Oh, yeah. 
Tundra Ugh. Coat Week is not fun. It's like everything is crunchy. You have to have so many it. layers. Of, yeah. No, yeah. this doesn't sound like fun at all. But glad you're turning 40. Welcome to the club. It's so much fun here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yep, you get Maybe. to do double middles to all the young folk who think they're so cool. You're like, you're not. <laughs> you're not. And that's just my take on turning 40. <laughs> sure. And maybe life. Maybe life. Um, Patricia loves giving those double middles anytime she can. Right. It's just going to be the theme of season three, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's the theme of 2022, isn't it? Oh my gosh, That's so true. much as we covered uh, last Already. episode. Yeah. Yeah. Woods, what about you? What's going on? Well, at only 38, I am enjoying oh so many youthful activities. <laughs> <laughs> Shall I double middles you? <laughs> I think I had brought to talk about was my gluten-free diet so it doesn't sound like very useful actually when you think about it <laughs> wait when did you decide to have a gluten-free diet i didn't know oh, my when i was diagnosed with celiacs in october i think it was october yeah so i've been um using our not cold not tundra winter to experiment with some gluten-free baking and Ooh. it's not my strongest skill uh, <laughs> apparently the gluten was the glue holding all my baked goods together because <laughs> um otherwise it's not so bad like um gluten-free pasta is not regular pasta but it's not bad you can substitute that's okay but gluten-free baking is not the same using almond flour and coconut flour and charlotte was helping me bake some gluten-free like cookie bar things last night and she was stirring the dough and was like is this what it's gonna look like from now on It's really crumbly. I was like, no, no, but it's going to be delicious. It wasn't really. So You put enough sugar and, and butter in anything, it could be delicious. Yes, probably the issue with the recipe was that it substituted. It was vegan also. I don't know what was happening with the oh. island. This is what I mean. It's all an experiment because I'm trying to find where's the happy middle of people who aren't looking to throw out everything they just need to throw out the gluten and it seems like when we throw away gluten we also throw away dairy and i don't know it's sugar i don't know who those people are but they have chosen a sad life you don't need to do it don't do it Uh (laughs) so staring down the barrel of celiacs is what i'm doing yay happy 38 (laughs) yay so speaking of cooking, uh, I made some chili last night. Do you guys ever mm. make pots of chili? Yeah, but I have not done that in a few years. I don't know. So yes, yeah, but chili not Chili is often. a staple of Iowa winters. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Mm. What do you guys do? How do you make your chili? Well, I log on to my New York Times recipe subscription and do whatever they tell me. Okay. <laughs> That's how I make it. So do you put like meat in it? You do like... Oh, yeah. We got beans, meat, cumin, paprika. Okay, nice. Really good when you do like half Italian sausage and half ground beef. Just want to recommend that. Spicy Italian sausage. Okay, those are good tips. Okay. Yeah. It's the first time I think I've ever made chili last night. Um, Sarah, Oh, really? I do white chicken chili. It's very good. Yeah. Okay. What makes it white? Cheese? So it's no... Yes, there is both of those things, and there's no tomatoes. Um, so yes, it's very different. And white beans, it's delicious. It's a family good. recipe. Family so, mm. No uh, subscription needed. No subscription. I mean, there has to be a price to pay to be in the family at some point, right? We all pay that price a little oh, bit. Oh, sure. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, it's a very sad way to look at it, but yes, 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 you're right. I didn't do a recipe and I don't have a family recipe. I just was like, this is what I think goes in chili. Um, oh, this all feels right, actually. <laughs> it turned out good. So I did yeah. black beans. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Tomatoes, kind of going down yeah. a Mexican route there. We have this ground uh, beyond beef that like Costco sells now. So we got some of that and we like brown that with onions. Mm-hmm. Okay. A bunch of seasonings. I threw some turmeric in there because why not? Um, sure. And then some like green chilies. And that's what I did. Okay. Put some of my hot okay. sauce in it. It was really good. Yeah. That's amazing. It does feel like these chilies are the archetypes of Onions. who we are as people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Jacob signing on to a New York Times subscription. Right. <laughs> I have a standard family heirloom. I should follow the rules. This I is what I know works. <laughs> and Patricia just been like, I think this is what goes in chili. Let's just try it out. But was it good? Yeah. Good. It was good. Did you put like sour cream, crunch up oh. some tortilla chips on the top with some no. cheddar yeah. cheese? That's how you do chili. Chili is the vehicle for those things that he's describing, yes. Patricia. Now sour that you've been cream. introduced. I put hot sauce on it and ate mm. it. Dipped a baguette in it. <laughs> that also tracks for Patricia. <laughs> oh, mercy. Had the nice salad from the garden. Yeah. Rub it in. Garden. <laughs> You know, that's not happening in my house. I know. We have snow outside. So the garden is currently uh, just spinach and baby kale. It's not like lushy lettuce, but that's okay. It was still delicious. A little extra chew in there, but it was good. I loved it. First up, popping culture. We learn a lot about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you got for us this week? I'm going to meander a little bit and start at one place, go to another place, and then hopefully circle back. So Hopefully. Okay, take us on this journey. So in 2008, going back, uh, Chimamanda Adichie, are you all familiar with her? A Nigerian author. Definitely should look her up. Um, She gave a really cool TED Talk about the danger of a single story. And she talked about growing up in Nigeria when she had access to British and American books, like as a young kid. And so she started wanting to create her own stories. And the stories she created would have white people with blue eyes who are talking about the weather and eating apples, because that's what she knew was in stories, right? And then she also talks about how that kind of ripple effect showed up in different places her life and how she needed to learn the importance of representation in those stories. Mm, yes. So let's fast forward now to 2021. And this is where we're going forward, right? So last fall, if you um, weren't aware, we had the second black bachelorette in the history of the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise. And also for the first time, the final four were all black folks, right? So you had Michelle, second black bachelorette of uh, ever, and the final three men are also all black. And while reality television, you know, is often just pushed for drama and, you know, it's kind of crazy and unrealistic, what I did love about this season is it's 
creating new stories, right? Unfortunately, it took the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise a long time to get away from just the single story that they were portraying, which was white people falling in love with white people. What I appreciated about this is it did push a new narrative, right? And Michelle and some of the men that um, were in her final three talked about this a lot, of growing up and not being able to see two black people falling in love mm. and the importance of presenting that story and that representation out in the world so other people could turn it on and see that even as fanciful and as fast-paced as love is in the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise, I still think that that representation, that story is really important. It allows people to know if they can see different narratives and different stories that those can be created. Now, I'm not trying to give the Bachelor and Bachelorette franchise props for their work around like racial justice yeah. or anything like that because they're not the best about that. Past members are holding it to them to account, which I think is better, but I do think it's important that when we think about the stories we tell ourselves, when we think about the books we give to our children, that we are making sure that those diverse narratives are being shown there, right? Because when we can create diverse narratives around love, around race, around identity, we can also create diverse um, narratives about ourselves too, which allow more flexibility in our relationships. So if you don't want to watch uh, Michelle's season of The Bachelorette, that's okay. But I would totally <laughs> recommend checking out Chimamanda Adichie's, I think it's 2008 TED Talk. It has like over 29 million views. Oh my. About the danger of a single story. It's really great and a really important thing to keep in mind when we're thinking about representation and love and relationships. Absolutely love it. We'll put a link of the TED Talk in the description of the show. Check it out. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Family Structure, Risks, and Racial Stratification in Poverty, recently published in the Journal of Social Problems, written by Dr. Dedrick Williams at the University of Tennessee, Go Balls and Dr. Regina Baker at the University of Pennsylvania. No idea what their mascot is. These authors explore how racial inequality is tied to risks of poverty and whether racialized groups differ and how they are penalized for these risks. The authors explain that specifically family structure, and that's kind of how people organize themselves, tends to look like mm -hmm. marriage, single parenthood, divorce, and the like, has been really a consistent explanation for why African-Americans have a greater risk of experiencing poverty, resulting in decades of research and policy that emphasize two-parent family formation in an attempt to mitigate poverty. In fact, welfare reforms in the 90s and healthy marriage initiatives in the mid-2000s were federal policy initiatives that promoted marriage as a way to reduce poverty, focusing on marriage as providing two household salaries and using research that emphasized the benefits of marriage for children's well-being. So basically, for many years, the message was, if you want to avoid being poor, you should get married. Because, you know, nothing uh, beats poverty like uh, getting married. Because that's definitely a causal relationship. As a result, these authors explain <laughs> Americans view non-marital fertility or having children when not married as, quote, problematic behavior that causes, there we go, people to be poor, promotes welfare dependence, and leads to intergenerational transmission of inequality. In other words, we have a long assumed that family structure is a pathway to racial inequality, 
We've decided that this is a behavioral issue. Black and Latinx children are more likely to live in single parent families, which is therefore at least part of what causes their greater likelihood to live in poverty. If these issues are largely behavioral, then there is less that needs to be done otherwise to reduce poverty inequity. Like we don't need to make systemic changes. Poverty is quote, their issue because it's their behavior. Very much a way to blame BIPOC families and not take responsibility for the systems in place that perpetuate oppression and inequalities. However, research hasn't supported this association. Family structure doesn't fully explain race-based economic disparities, and the authors point out that part of the issue is that research often ignores racial inequalities in other risk factors associated with poverty, such as unemployment, affordable housing, or physical health. The authors also explain that research and policy to date has also largely ignored how race is a social construction and research fails to test established power differences between racialized groups. Therefore, these researchers test a racial stratification approach to understanding racial inequality in poverty. In other words, they test how resources, poverty risk factors, and family structures are distributed across racialized groups and then test how this is associated associated with racial economic inequality. I'm really excited about this paper. So often it's truly remarkable how research is consistently misinterpreted and used to justify bad policy. Um, and I think that this paper is a step in the kind of rectifying that. So Sarah, can you help us understand this last piece a bit? And first, since it seems super important for understanding um, this study in particular. Yeah, um, I agree. This is a really gorgeous piece of research. The writing is really beautiful. It's a really rich paper. So we're going to try to do it justice. And also there's no way to do it justice on a podcast platform. It's really, really rich. So the research question that they're looking to explore is whether the risks for poverty are unequally distributed across racialized groups. So how risk factors for poverty occur for Black families, Latinx families, white families, and when people experience these risk factors, are the penalties for these risks among Black and Latinx mothers smaller or larger than for white moms? So when they're talking about risks, they're talking about these characteristics that are more common among poor families than among non-poor families. And these researchers are looking at how many people in their sample experience these risks, but also the probability of poverty being associated with each risk. So I'm going to walk through um, specifically the risk factors they look at, but as an example, they're looking at depression as a risk factor for poverty. We know it occurs more often in families experiencing poverty, but for this sample specifically, they also look at how much risk depression creates for these families uh, experiencing poverty over the part of the life course that they're looking at. So essentially the question is, is family structure a driving factor for poverty? Does it explain why people experience poverty? And if so, then you would expect to see similar penalties for single parent families, regardless of race. In other words, marriage would similarly benefit Black, Latinx, and white families who, if they're married, would be less likely to experience poverty across the board. However, if resources are unequally distributed across racialized groups, 
using the author's racial stratification lens, we would then expect that poverty would happen unequally between Black, Latinx, and white families, and unequally due to these different risk factors, regardless of their family structure. And so what these authors do, they use panel data, specifically the Fragile Families and Child Wellbeing Study, which if you are a family researcher, demographer, a sociologist, uh, this is a really well-known, really incredible, rich data set, huge, enormous data set. It's nationally representative. It's longitudinal. Um, it began in 1998-2000 was the first baseline wave. So this project follows a birth cohort of almost 5,000 kids and their parents from 20 U.S. cities with populations of 200,000 or more people. So in total, they have almost 5,000 moms and almost 4,000 dads. And those kids were born mostly to unmarried moms, so 3,700 unmarried moms uh, compared to 1,200 married moms. That's intentional. The way that they specifically um, recruited their population was intentionally to pull more from these specifically urban families who are more likely to experience a single parent family structure or an unmarried family structure. So the baseline, they found um, they found moms in the hospital. That's sort of a creepy way to describe that. Story, but they, <laughs> hospitals. <laughs> Maybe they did. Um, but they interviewed moms in person in the hospital within 48 hours of childbirth. Uh, and then wow. dads were interviewed in person or by the phone once they located the fathers too. And then the parents were interviewed again Again, when the child was one, three, five, and nine years old. So there are five waves of data starting within 48 hours of the child's birth all the way through nine wow. years old, which is why it's so rich. It's an incredible data set. So these authors specifically pulled families who'd participated in several follow-up surveys. They wanted to make sure they had data across this time span and who reported race and ethnicity. So their sample specifically is a little over 2,000 black moms, about 1,100 Latinx moms, and 940 white moms. So they're specifically looking at mom's poverty status at each follow-up survey. That's what they're looking to predict is what impacts whether or not moms are experiencing poverty over each of these follow-up surveys. And they're defining poverty, which I think is important, as this household income to needs ratio. They use mm. the U.S. poverty thresholds from the Census Bureau, um, but they also adjust by family composition Right, So if your salary covers five people, that's different if your household income covers two people. Uh, and also year, so they adjust it by year. They look at family structure based on mom's reports at baseline. So whether moms report that they're married, they're cohabiting, they're living with the other parent, or whether they're single. And then risk factors, which I think, again, are really, really important. They're looking in three different categories. So health problems, like I said earlier, depression, but also physical limitations and illicit drug use. Uh, all risk factors all occur more in families that experience poverty broadly, generally. Economic risk factors, which is economic hardship. So trouble, if moms report that they are having trouble paying rent, they're receiving free meals, moms or dads are reporting that they're unemployed. Not only does that occur broadly more often in families that experience poverty, but that's going to be more likely to predict poverty over time. If I'm having trouble paying rent when my child is one, I'm much more likely to be below poverty status by the mm. age of three, right? Um, social risks is their third category. So low social support, whether or not they have people that they can lean on or ask for help when they need it, and whether or not their dads were incarcerated. So they calculated the total number of risk factors that parents experienced at one, three, five, and nine years old to look at the differences in how risk factors occur in these racialized groups, but also whether the number of risk factors then predicts 
differences in how poverty is experienced. Mm -hmm. They also controlled for a number of variables, um, age, education, neighborhood disadvantage, country of origin for Latinx mm -hmm. families, nativity status. I mean, a whole slew of other factors that could potentially explain. They use them in their tests and their statistics so that any association between those factors and poverty, which for some or all of these we might expect, expect. to be tied to poverty, they are controlling for those effects. So they test uh, how marital status or family structure and these different risk factors predict poverty for each racialized group. At baseline, they find that Latinx and white moms are more likely to be married compared to black moms. White moms have higher levels of education. They're more likely to own their own homes. So when they're describing their sample, just at baseline, you can already start to see some of these differences and disparities. Um, poverty trends, what they find over time within each racialized group. So if they just look at black moms or they just look at white moms, um, economic gaps are tied to marital status, and those gaps are similar. So within each of these groups, single moms, um, when their child is born, are more likely to be poor, followed by cohabiting moms and then married moms who are less likely to be poor. But if you look between these groups, there are some big differences that start to show up in mm. poverty trends. Um, so among married moms, about 20% of black moms were poor over time. Well, 40% of Latinx moms were poor at year one, but that percentage decreases over time. Married white moms, uh, less than 10% were poor, and that was pretty stable. Sort of starting to look at their research questions specifically, they find, for example, when they're looking at the prevalence of risk factors, so how many risk factors are occurring within each of these racialized groups, they find that black moms have a significantly higher risk prevalence. They have significantly higher number of risk factors wow. that they experience compared to Latinx and white moms. Um, and that the trends in how prevalent these risk factors are, are pretty stable over time for each group. So now I'm going to describe their sort of key findings, because I think uh, these are again, phenomenal. And I am distilling down this incredible project to a few of these findings that are significant. And they have many more that I would encourage you to read in the paper if you're somebody yeah. who is um, a researcher and has access to that too. So they find, quote, I pulled out this quote, um, which I rarely sort of do, but I thought it was really powerful, a dramatic divergence in the mm. penalties for risks between racialized groups whereby Black and Latinx mothers experience greater penalties from risks between racialized groups. So what they found is the risk of probability of poverty among married white moms is only 15% of the expected probability of poverty faced by married black moms and only 12% of the probability of married Latinx moms, meaning the risk of poverty, the probability that married black moms and married Latinx moms experience poverty is much larger than the mm. probability that married white moms are going to experience poverty. Um, and the gaps between those groups um, narrow as they look at the greater number of risks, but those gaps stay really large. So at a baseline, they're looking, what I was just describing as married marriage, right? Family structure. But among married women with three or more risk factors for poverty, white women still only have a probability of experiencing poverty that is only 44% wow. of black moms and 34% of the probability of poverty being experienced by Latinx moms. Um, so the racial differences um, are large. They're substantial. Wow. Even when we add in the same number of risk yeah. factors, those racial differences they also found for cohabiting and single moms. So um, said another way, they do this a lovely job of examining this from multiple angles, I think, to make sure that the results 
are really clear yeah. and I really appreciate it. So among married moms, the probability of poverty for white women with three or more risk factors for poverty is equal to that of black women with zero risk factors. Wow. Yeah, and less than that of Latinx moms with zero risk factors. Also, another way that they say it, black and Latinx cohabiting moms with zero risk factors, reporting none of these health problems, Mm -hmm. none of these economic risk factors, none of these social risk factors. Black and Latinx cohabiting moms have similar predicted probabilities of experiencing poverty during those first nine years of their child's life as white cohabiting moms with three or more risk factors. Right? I know I just got goosebumps. It's an incredible study. Uh, Unmarried Black and Latinx moms with no risk experience greater penalties than unmarried white moms with three or more risks. So no matter how you look at it, Black and Latinx moms experienced greater penalties for these risk factors. These risk factors conveyed a much greater risk Mm -hmm. for poverty than white moms, regardless of what their family structure was. So um, I do think there are, I mean, I sort of struggle to think about what are the limitations of this paper. So I'm presenting this sort of uh, balanced view of research. <laughs> I mean, it's really just incredible. But of course, this is just fragile families data specifically. So this is urban moms, these are urban families. So I don't know what this looks like and neither do they <laughs> for rural families. They're focusing on income or household income to needs ratio. Um, as the dependent variable only, there are other ways to explore and examine poverty. Um, some of the risk factors that they're looking at are sometimes ways to also explore how poverty occurs over the lifespan. So I'm not sure that's a limitation per se, but just sort of one way that they're exploring how poverty occurs. I think the really key takeaway here is that family structure is a really oversimplified explanation for yeah. why poverty occurs. And it really is problematic to think about marriage marriage as contributing to why poverty occurs because it distracts from the actual structural systemic sources of racial inequality in economic resource that actually could be impacted. You could actually make changes there while focusing on behavioral factors such as whether or not you're choosing to be in a two-parent family is not only not explaining poverty, but incredibly victim-blaming. Yeah. And for years and years across multiple presidential administrations, uh, Clinton, Bush, Obama, we have used policy uh, to talk about marriage being a cure for poverty. But the benefits of marriage are not the same for everyone. So you found some benefits of marriage for within these groups, but across these groups, it is wildly different. Uh, It is not the same. Much more important, these risk factors convey a totally different kind of risk for poverty uh, among Black and Latinx families. So I think a really, really key takeaway here is that these policies that we have to reduce poverty, the initiatives that we look at to reduce racial inequity in economic resources needs to reconsider any focus that we have on the benefits of marriage and instead be looking at why the risk factors for poverty are riskier for Black and Latinx families. Beautifully said. I think also none of this research is saying that marriage is bad. <laughs> I think a lot of like yeah. the counterpoint when you talk about marriage doesn't cause poverty, the counterpart is like, oh, are you saying marriage is bad? No, marriage is great. It's fantastic, but it should not be the focus of policy to reduce uh, racial inequities and and poverty. It's just not in the data. It's just not there. It's a misplacement. And like you're saying, it's victim blaming. 
Right. Well, marriage is fantastic for some people. Yeah, that's true. It's not fantastic for all people. And as these authors do a really incredible job exploring and describing the history around marriage and um, policy-based penalties for single-parent families and marital tax benefits and the race-driven legal consequences of not being married over the last several hundred years. Uh, This is what they're talking about when they're talking about these systemic factors that are baked into how our society is set up that create systemic inequity. Marriage has been tied to all of these other value systems and all of these other benefits, but they do not benefit everybody the same. And that is actually the factor that could be impacted on that we then ignore and obscure and don't focus energy on when we solely talk about family structure. Woohoo! Boo! Woohoo! Yeah! Finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from our parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all of those top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science, mind you, to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on all of those social medias, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, because we know we all love Facebook, at Attached Podcast, or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message. While you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And as always, share it in some way with your loved ones. Now, you could be very direct about it and say, hey, loved one, listen to this. Or you could be more indirect, more obscure. Just listen to it really loud, not using headphones (laughs) around your loved one. And then they're like, what is this? And you're like, let me tell you. Multiple options available to you. Today in Good or Bad Advice, we are going to highlight some of the conversation, just some of it, around Encanto from... I said that with such a Southern accent. Encanto. Encanto. (laughs) Um, We can't all be perfect. Encanto with some of the TikTok creators. I thoroughly enjoyed Encanto. Fantastic movie. I've also really loved, there's been a really rich conversation on TikTok. I'm sure other social media platforms, I just (laughs) don't go to those anymore. Um, That's not true, I do. Um, I wanted to just kind of highlight here some of those conversations. So a lot of the conversation around Encanto on TikTok has been about family functioning. And there have been some creators that talk about like the dysfunction of Encanto. And there's been a lot of back and forth. So one of the topics I want to talk about is when you're diagnosing family dysfunction, as they call it, um, or family functioning, um, the importance of using um, a cultural context. So I'm going to show you two clips back to back. Um, The first one is a, a psychology student who talks about diagnosing the Encanto family structure. And then the second one is a reflection about that 
um, and the importance of cultural context. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. In Encanto, every single family member is some sort of representation of a trauma or a role that somebody would be forced to play in a toxic family. Let's talk about it. You guessed it, I'm a psychology major, so we like have to do this. Let's get started. Okay, so let's start off with Abuela. In this situation, Abuela is the abuser and it's more like mental and emotional abuse with some sort of like manipulation in there. And it is, she's like assigning um, her family's worth to their gifts and not even their gifts, but like how helpful they are to her specifically. And this is triggered by her own trauma, like losing her home and the love of her life, but still don't like it because PSA, trauma is no excuse to treat people poorly and that's exactly what she does next up we have one of my personal favorites julietta i just i love her so much she plays the role of the healer or like the fixer and that's not because of like the food thing she does if somebody is hurt she fixes it if there's a problem she's the one to deal with it if the family is falling apart she's the one who feels like she has to put it back together and this role is actually really common within toxic families where like one child feels like the family issues are like it's their problem and they need to fix it. And this is the role Abuela put on Julieta. Next one we have Peppa. And I just want to warn you, this one's, this one's rough. So Peppa's kind of thing that she deals with is like gaslighting. Like she's emotionally gaslit constantly throughout the movie. And you can see this mostly when like Abuela tells her to stop feeling her feelings. And of course in the movie, like it's funny because her emotions are connected to her powers. So then like if she's mad, she has like a rainy cloud over her head and people are like, ha ha ha, stop it, you have a rainy cloud. But does anybody ask why she has a cloud? Does anybody ask what's wrong? Does anybody validate her feelings? She's specifically told, don't feel your feelings. Don't address them. They're not a problem. You're fine. Straight up emotional gaslighting, man. I couldn't find a picture of his door, but next up we have Bruno. For some reason, the one you're super obsessed with. Bruno plays the role of scapegoat within the family. Now, in a toxic family, usually one child is labeled as a scapegoat and everything is their fault. The parent labels every dysfunction and problem in the family as their fault. And usually the child who is assigned this role is the child that sees the dysfunction and the problems in the family and actually like addresses it and says like, hey, something's wrong, like this isn't right. And the parents just like, no, you're done, you're done. And that's literally what was happening with Bruno. Like it's a little different, but like just kind of like a, a interpretation. Bruno had the visions, told the family about the problem and the issues. He did not cause any of them. He just warned and like told them about it. And they pretty much shunned him. And they were like, we don't talk about Bruno, no, no, no. So he's like the scapegoat. Okay, that was a long one. So thanks for bearing with us. Do you guys want to have thoughts about it now? Or do you want to hear the other kind of uh, reflection on that from a Latinx? Let's hear the next one. Okay. Yeah, I agree. So she's referencing, I think I know who you're talking about. There's a comment that is asking her about the video we just watched. Personally, I think it is. Then I did see their video because I was tagged in their comments. And that creator did say that they were a psychology major. And so they use textbook psych definitions of a family to uh, attach to each character in Encanto. And they specifically centered the conversation around what a toxic family dynamic looks like and labeled Abuela as the abuser. Now, I've literally mentioned a hundred times that Abuela Alma's trauma doesn't justify the harm that she causes her family, but to label her as just an abuser takes away the complexities of her character. And it's more nuanced, nuanced than that 
because the conversation needs to be centered around generational trauma. And this creator did not center generational trauma, and that's why it feels like the cultural context was dismissed, and it feels like it wasn't culturally accurate. And I didn't see any indication that this creator is from a Latine background. Um, and this is where it gets to be problematic because in the comments, the creator is being called out and told that they need to include that cultural context. And they have been pretty dismissive of everyone who said that. And the moment this creator said that they were a psychology major, they established some sort of expertise. So now people are gonna go take this creator's word for it. And this video that has gotten a lot of attention um, is gonna be floating around, missing the biggest part of the conversation that needs to be included, which is generational trauma. Also add that labels can be empowering or disempowering. For example, giving someone the language to say, hey, this is generational trauma, can create space for that person to make empowered choices and seek tools of support to address that generational trauma and break those generational cycles that are toxic within their family. Labeling Abuela Alma as the abuser is disempowering. In Latine communities, family is everything and family is your support system that you need to survive in this world. And so now I'm imagining somebody who hears this label of Abuela Alma is the abuser and has their own version of Abuela Alma in their real life. And they are not in a position where they can cut off their family because they need their family to survive in the world. Because I'll say cutting off toxic family members is not that simple. There is a lot of safety planning that is required to make sure that leaving is sustainable. So two videos reflecting upon each other i'm curious what your thoughts are we're not going to really kind of do a good or bad advice we're going to kind of try and start a conversation about um encanto in the context of family systems my first thought psychology majors should not be viewed as experts <laughs> I mean, the second person there was saying, like, this person is saying that they have some expertise, yeah. which they really don't. Like, that description of a toxic family, and I watched Encanto, and I wouldn't have labeled that family toxic at all, right? They're talking about abusive and labels that I think go beyond what I experienced in that because couples I work with where toxicity and abuse don't have that sense of resilience, forgiveness, adaptability right. that the family in Encanto shows. So I loved what the um, second woman there talked about. And I want to kind of point out for the reason why I love it is because the first person is talking about individualized uh, decontextualized traits. Okay, you are this, you are this, you right. are that. When in fact, you know, um, the second woman there was talking about uh, intergenerational trauma, um, systemic issues and contextual issues, which is really important in understanding family dynamics, right? You can't just put individual labels on individual people without understanding the system and the context and the environment of that system. So for me, if you're not watching this on YouTube, both Sarah and I, as you were playing the first yeah. video, were just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Go to YouTube just for the facial reactions. <laughs> and the second video, we're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm, yes, that's exactly what we need to be talking about. And I think that's the story Encanto was trying to share, right? It gave us all that background history of Abuela losing 
her husband and all of that to show this intergenerational connection of this family. And the first video just put that all aside and said like, these are the roles that people play because it's trauma and because of this and it's a linear relationship between this and that and this is whose fault it is. And when you do that, you never really understand families in the way that they need to be understood. So um, yeah, second woman there, Listen to that. That's a much more systemic and um, accurate representation of how I experienced the Encanto family anyway. Woods? I agree. I think that first video is um, really uh, problematic, really um, linear view of, honestly, families broadly, not just this family. Yeah. Like If that's how you think about families, family members, family relationships, um, it's, and she specifically really said toxic. Toxic families so many times, which the second woman's uh, point was many times about how you, you've not only established that you have some sort of expertise in sort of dissecting this, but also you have um, created a really disempowering narrative. If the goal as a quote, psychology major would be to help families create change. Uh, you certainly aren't going to do that by labeling them as toxic families, which I think is um, a sort of really interesting mirrored process. She is blaming the matriarch of this family for creating really rigid roles for her children and her grandchildren, when in reality, this first video is somebody who's um, very rigidly defined oh, these yeah. characters and these very specific roles that are really problematic and incredibly negative. Uh, and the theme of generational trauma in this film is so beautiful and does such an incredible job of showing some of the rigidity that can occur in families as part of how they are coping with a legitimate need to survive that then trickles down over generations and also shows beautiful ways that they love each other and take care of each other and take care of this community and that their responsibility is to use the gifts that they have to earn these gifts, to keep their community alive, to enrich the lives of the families around them. This family is far from toxic. Um, so I certainly think that the second video is uh, doing a really lovely, very nuanced job yeah. of gently pointing out the very problematic narrative of that first video. I agree. I think that there is um, some echoing in the first video of generally what our pushback continuously is of psychology as a discipline, the individualistic nature of psychological studies for the most part. So there's that too, but I agree. Um, the second woman and a lot of the conversation around Encanto has been kind of wonderful education about what generational trauma is, what it looks like. Um, and later on, I'll demonstrate kind of how Encanto demonstrated how to break that generational trauma. But this next creator on TikTok does good work for us in kind of defining what generational trauma is. And I thought that was really important for us to kind of have an insight in. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. Yes, I will try to explain this as best as I can. So generational trauma, um, basically what it is, is like trauma that is passed down um, from one generation to the next. And I want, maybe it'll be easier to like actually just paint an example. So let's say like my great grandma experienced some sort of a traumatic event, which she kind of did because my 
great-grandparents had to flee Mexico. Yeah, great-grandparents. They had to flee Mexico because of the Mexican Revolutionary War and violence and yada, yada, yada. I don't know what they experienced or what they saw, but it was traumatic. And what happens is when they come to uh, a new country, the United States, and then they raise my grandma, they unknowingly pass down a lot of that trauma they experienced to my grandma. That might look like, for example, um, maybe they yelled at her because she didn't finish her plate of food and they would get really, really mean and force her to finish her plate of food. Now, it's not about finishing the food. It's about the fact that a lot of times us families that are, you know, fleeing persecution and war and violence, we come to a new country where we don't have as much as we used to have in the motherland. So when food goes to waste like that, it is an absolute sin. So the great grandparents who recognize how very few resources they have, they take it out on my grandma. My grandma has no idea why they are freaking out because she won't finish her quesadilla or whatever. My grandma unconsciously teaches this behavior to my dad and forces him to finish all his food or she gets really, really upset. My dad unconsciously, without questioning where this behavior, where this reaction comes from, he just passes it down to me and he says, you have to finish your plate. And his reasoning is because that's how he was taught and that's how his grandmother was taught, etc. So now we have this like really negative relationship with food and with forcing ourselves to fill up when we are clearly full. That's a really mild example of generational trauma, though. It's basically these behaviors and reactions that come from a traumatic event that didn't happen in our lifetimes. It happened in the lifetimes of our ancestors, and it gets passed down to the generations. So thoughts on generational trauma as she explained it, if you have any. You don't necessarily have to. I appreciate the story and the um, really easy example of being able to describe Mm -hmm. intergenerational trauma. I would also point out too that the experience of intergenerational trauma is not just social or emotional. There's good evidence we have now. It's building evidence, not solid evidence, of how trauma can affect our epigenome or the thing that tells our genes to turn on and off. So Rachel Yehuda out of Mount Sinai Hospital has been looking at the offspring of folks who survived the Holocaust and has actually found that their epigenome takes on a different thing in response to the trauma that their grandparents experienced. What is being passed down genetically is encoded. And so Mm. they are having different experiences when it comes to health, anxiety, depression than those who didn't have ancestors or grandparents who experienced that level of trauma. So trauma has a huge impact. I think it's important too, what I appreciated about that video is the larger systemic factor of that trauma, right? They're talking about experiencing violence in one country coming to a new country where they are then not having the amount of resources that they were previously experienced right so that's compounding trauma which is causing that stress which in fact then organizes the structure of the family in order to survive right because trauma kicks off our survival instincts to make sure we can keep us safe which then is moved through you know 
the epigenetic process, the social and emotional processes across those generations. So great example. And um, I really appreciate how Encanto shows this. And again, going back to that first one, I don't think I would use the word toxic in this case at all, but that's my thoughts. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's a really nicely digestible example to talk about how patterns of behavior play out across generations of families. I would also agree with Jacob that I think thinking about generational trauma, you don't want to risk thinking about trauma as necessarily a one-time occurrence. That for a lot of families, especially families that are going through migration, it's not just a solitary single trauma that is experienced Mm. by one member of the family or by one generation. It's sort of continued um, separation from family members and um, a lack of sufficient economic resources in your new home. And uh, I think part of the risk of thinking about generational trauma as one isolated event as like they solely lost their grandfather and then what an unfair reason for that woman Uh, having lost her husband to continue to traumatize her family forever. Mm. But those children lost their father. They lost their home. They experienced violence. And in this movie, they have magical uh, gifts and a magical homeland, a new town that they've created. They create um, all kinds of resources and protection. Yes, and the mountains literally cut them off from their uh, previous life. Right. Mm -hmm. That's a magical lovely representation of what they've created and this um, new gifts that they're given. And also trauma can perpetuate in ways that are other than just sort of behavioral patterns too that continue to impact us. So I think it's a really lovely way to explain that and a really important part of that movie's narrative. Yeah, I agree. And this next creator, Natalia, has a two-parter. We're just going to go with one part of it, but I'll put both of them in the description. Uh, kind of with all of those lenses, trying to understand each member of the family. The first one is the older generation, and the second one is the younger generation. So since we haven't talked about the younger generation, we're going to just really quickly um, watch Natalia's video about that. Okay, in part two, we're going to talk about the trauma in the younger generation of Encanto. Dolores. Dolores hears everyone's secrets, but she's the quietest other than Antonio, which we will talk about later. For most of the movie, she barely speaks over a whisper, and I think that's because she was probably told to shut up her entire life. Imagine, she hears all the family secrets, and she started hearing them at a very young age when she probably didn't really know how to control her power. And she's just getting flooded with all this information, and she doesn't know what's okay or not okay to talk about. So she was probably told to callate, callate, callate. She knew too much, she talked too much, and was probably told to be quiet. As a result, she finds it difficult to express herself and has become this quiet little reserved mouse. She even squeaks like a mouse. Isabella's the beautiful one, the perfect one, the golden child of the family, and is expected to preserve that status, so she will literally do anything that the family needs her to do, including marrying a man she doesn't want to marry because that's what the family needs her to do. She has to marry up to preserve the miracle and increase her family's status in the community, and it's expected especially of her because she won the genetic lottery in looks and charm. That expectation to be constantly perfect is exhausting and unsustainable. She can't be herself. She doesn't even know who that is because she's been thrust into this very specific position within the family. Our girl, Luisa, she is stuck with carrying the burden of her entire family on her back, almost literally. She's the strong one. She absorbs the family burden. She's the one people turn to in a crisis to help them, to protect them, to save them. They depend on her to carry them through. She is the epitome of overtired, overworked, and underappreciated. She's unable to just be a young girl, to ask for help, to cry. She internalizes a lot, and it's suffocating her. A lot of you guys resonated with her. Camilo mirrors. Have you noticed that until the end of the movie, we rarely see him as himself? 
Instead, he's always shifting into what others expect or want him to be. He does it to help, but he's rarely just himself. He's charming and funny, and in the first song, they say something along the lines of, he won't stop until he makes you smile today. But at what cost? Who does the kid really want to be? Does he even know? Our girl Mirabel is the new generation black sheep of the family. She doesn't quite fit in. There's something different about her, there's something new about her, and it's a bit unsettling to the rest of the family. Despite the fact that she does everything in her power to try to help the family, to impress them, to get noticed. She's the type of kid who would have gotten an A and they would have said, why not A+, plus? or been in the school play but not the lead. Always measuring just a little short of what would impress the family. But people like this are super important because obviously she was the only one who was able to break through that generational cycle of trauma. And finally, Tonino, the cutest animation I've ever seen in my goddamn life. Oh my god, he's so adorable. He's very quiet and it's much more subtle, but this was my take. You can let me know what you think. I think that Antonio's a very sensitive, shy little boy. He barely speaks to anyone except Mirabel. In the beginning, he's hiding even from his own family. He's a hugger, a snuggler, obviously very physically affectionate, and very openly vulnerable in the way that young children can be. I think that's probably not looked on very kindly by the older generations. I think his family's probably fine with it, but abuela, mm, I feel like he's probably been told not to be so sensitive and some sort of version of man up, even though he's just a little boy. I think him being able to talk to animals is because he can't talk to anybody else in his family. So he can stay quiet, stay sensitive, but still have an outlet. I'm running out of time, so. She does a great job. I like how in the description, she explains how the trauma has influenced all of their kind of personalities and behaviors. Um, but I also like how she doesn't really label anyone um, like that first video we we saw. But I'm curious what you think about Natalia's descriptions. So first, I didn't know this nuanced level of conversation happens on TikTok. Me either. Me either. <laughs> I thought it was just people dancing in videos. I, mean, I know the stereotype that people have. I know. On like that's. It's what happens when you get and old like me. You just I think know. like TikTok is kids. Yeah, I know. We just I... established I'm older than you, but it's fine. <laughs> the other conversation that's happening around this that I did not include in this is a lot of people are saying how the younger um, Latinx individuals like are observing all of this stuff about Encanto, but they're saying that their grandparents, yeah, they liked it, but they didn't really see all of those intricacies that the younger generations um, saw reflecting on their own, on families, specifically like second generation kids in the US. Like I was just gonna say too, it seems though that everybody wants to make Abuela the bad person. I feel like her arc and her story, right? That they're taking apart one interaction that Abuela has and saying, yeah, she's the one that causes trauma for everybody else, which I mean, again, that's decontextualizing well, everything that's going on. And also what I thought was beautiful about Abuela too is toxic people don't own up to their mistakes. Yeah, Toxic people don't see the need to change and let people in and ask for forgiveness. Abuela isn't toxic. She does that. I mean, as she goes across this arc, sure, she's made some bad decisions. I think if that's the standard for toxicity, then we're all toxic uh -oh. people because we've uh -oh. made some bad decisions and has been put contextually, as we talked about, in very difficult situation. And if we were all put in that situation, we can't say that our behaviors would be much different than Abuela. Yeah. Right? Like, given all of that, again, and I think that Abuela is a beautiful character because of this ability to adapt and change, right? Right. She demonstrates breaking this generational trauma cycle. And I have a video on that. Okay, sorry. I completely I, agree ahead. with you. I just kind of feel like everybody's 
like throwing abuela under the uh-huh. bus and Absolutely. I'm coming to her defense. So <laughs> I just feel like in relationships and, you know, there's other layers of this, but oftentimes we are going to be hurt by the people we love the most. And the key to that is not that, you know, like in healthy relationships, we don't hurt each other. It's how we respond when we've recognized that we've hurt others or that others have hurt us and how we come to them and how we try to repair that. So, you know, there's some times when there's types of harm and abuse that are different than what I would say is typical things that happen in a family that can be toxic. But I do want to make sure we understand the difference between those two. I do appreciate, as you're saying, Patricia, that she's not labeling these characters so much as she's describing potentially or her interpretation of how they could be enacting their roles in the family, sort of uh, reflective of these different relationships. And I really do think it is sort of a movie that's really showing these family members being in sort of eternal survival mode, Mm. right? That part of what generational trauma does, part of what trauma does is it's an incredible crisis. This abuela originally, right? She's a mom with three triplet infants who's survived incredible, unbelievable trauma. And she's in utter distraught crisis mode. And they're all in some form of survival mode. That survival mode is what's trickled down. And that's what contributes, I think, to some of these rigid patterns and some of how they live together and exist together. And I think part of what this video does really nicely is sort of describe how these kids are sort of existing in a family that is still in survival mode. They're trying not to move. They're trying to sort of keep still and keep where they are to keep alive. And that's literally what it feels like for them, that they need to survive it and they need to sort of stay where they are and do what they're good at and let everybody else do what they're good at because this is how we've created balance. This is how we've learned to survive. And so without safety and without sort of... um, Uh, undoing some of that survival mode for which you need actual literal safety um these patterns will continue to perpetuate when i watched this movie i thought early on like oh mirabelle's like the family therapist of this family not knowing where this family was going um (laughs) because she sort of does this really lovely job of describing how the family operates and really loving each one of these people but also really sort of helping each of them change and i was like i don't know where this story is going but i decided she was a family therapist of the family so she She's part of what helps create safety. And I think it's, again, just really, really lovely. Absolutely. Side note, what is the name of the the youngest kid again? Antonio. Antonio, he's the youngest one with the animals. Uh Uh-huh. So all of these lovely humans, it really is a depiction of breaking generational trauma. I think at one of the many, many themes. Um, There are some TikTok creators that theorize that the house knows this because um, on all of the doors, Antonio is the only one that is depicted as a child. All of the other ones are depicted as adults. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. There's so many like fun theories. I love how like many deep dives. uh, So creative. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've been on Encanto TikTok for uh, quite some time. Um, (laughs) So, but... I also liked this idea of breaking generational trauma and how to do this. One creator um, had... Look, I'll be the first one to admit, when I started you know, talking about the movie again and everything, I totally forgot about Umbrella's whole thing. I just remember she would be mean to Maribel, and I was like, that old bitch can catch these hands. But, you know, re-watching it, she acted in the way that many BIPOC matriarchs have acted. You know, she survived 
And she did it. She did it. She led a community. She grew a community. She, you know, as the matriarch of this family, she cared for three, not one, not two, three infants and raised them on her own. She survived. And she is desperately <laughs> trying to hold on to mm -hmm. everything that she worked so hard to keep and to, to grow after losing everything. You know, yeah, she, you know, watched her husband, her love of her life be slaughtered in front of her, but she even lost her home. That was violently ripped from her. Everything. And that's what a lot of these BIPOC matriarchs have gone through on top of abuse, on top of, and y'all think these women gonna be okay? No, no. And a lot of times, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, she a bitch. I don't know, no contact. We ain't gonna talk to her. Da, 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 da. Yes, I'm not excusing their behavior. Remember, trauma is the reason. It's never the excuse. But shit. <laughs> shit. True healing, guys. Let me tell you something about true healing. True healing is understanding that these people are not the villains that we often think that they are. True healing is being able to understand and empathize with them that's that true healing and i can say that because i spend four dollars a week to 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 get to this elevation of healing <laughs> but i like that part of the root that she's saying and i will put of course this video and all of the uh, creators uh links in our bio or in the description but part of it is empathizing understanding the story like sarah has said in the past but also she referred to going to therapy. <laughs> I was like, yes. Beautiful. Um, so what are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, maybe this is a little uh, kind of what she's getting at because I agree with everything she said. I thought it was said beautifully and I don't know mm -hmm. if I have anything more to add in that vein than what she said because it was so well done. The other vein I too, it, it kind of resonated with me is I work with a lot of younger couples in my practice and oftentimes, you know, they're having conflict in their relationship and I always like to branch that out to their families of origin and oftentimes you'll see that there is a lot of blame that is placed on i can't do anything about this relationship it's done it's fixed i decontextualize mm -hmm. it they're bad and in some cases that's true in some cases there has been um things that have happened that you know are not repairable but in many cases it's often you know as adults you're justifying your behavior based upon what someone else is doing or has done or your relationship with them across time. And I am not saying that it doesn't influence or doesn't hurt that, but if you can come to understand and contextualize and, and see these people to why they're behaving, why they're behaving, which I think she's saying about Abuela, is you can see that she went through all of these things. Trauma is the reason, not the excuse. Mm -hmm. But if you understand the reason, often you can approach that relationship differently. If you can understand and hear the story of that other person, I think it can have a powerful effect to heal that intergenerational trauma. So sometimes intergenerational trauma teaches us to be acted upon, like this is what has to happen. But we can also take some of the autonomy there to say, I can also learn, I can also change, I can adapt, I can grow. Beautiful comment from the creator there. I don't know if that's what you call them on TikTok. You do. And I would also say <laughs> it's important to understand uh, learning about the experiences of those who've come before you, I think is really important on your journey for mental health and to build relationships in the way that you want. Beautifully said.
what's no yeah i think even if developing that understanding of the impact of trauma even if you still decided that it was not going to be healthy for you to maintain a relationship with the family member that's maybe experienced some of that trauma and helps you sort of contextualize their behavior even if you decided that that wasn't a safe healthy relationship for you to continue to have the understanding also might sort of help you heal your relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and understanding your own story as well, even if those relationships aren't something that is safe for you to continue in the future. That was a beautiful video. I don't have anything. Beautiful video. It was lovely. It was absolutely. So ultimately, I think this movie is very positive. It demonstrates how to successfully break generational trauma and that we can change no matter how old we are. One other positive Mm -hmm. thing, and this is the last uh, but certainly not least video that I wanted to highlight is a really positive uh, depiction of masculinity, particularly um, in Felix. And this is brought to us by another TikTok creator. Calms her down. He also passes her a glass of orange juice. No, but actually Encanto has the best portrayal of like masculinity and manhood that I've seen in like modern media, especially in a cartoon movie. But I want to take a second to talk about Felix because he's amazing. And I think the movie did a really good job at showing us, not telling us that he uh, instilled these like values, these like treat your the women you love in the family well um, to his sons. The first comes right after Antonio got his gift and Abuela's coming to talk to the family and she sits down at the table and actually sits on one of the animals. And Antonio's like, I asked him to warm the seat for you. If you look closely really quick, you can see Felix in the corner giving a thumbs up because he's just so proud of his kid. And the second one comes later on when Mirabel's chasing Bruno through the house. It cuts to a quick scene of Camilo calming Peppa down uh, after she's having one of her uh, her panic episodes. With these two scenes, I think it's safe to infer that if Felix didn't teach his sons this, then he modeled it by example, which is amazing so many positive lovely things in this movie like little gems that she talked about just like a little tiny thumbs up from felix um and depiction of camilo calming you know helping his mother cope with the panic attack um i just the little gems in this movie and this one i honestly did not pick up on until i saw this creator talk about the positive masculinity thoughts and I also appreciate that the masculinity is more of a background story than the main story. Yeah. <laughs> because oftentimes these types of stories are dominated by white men um, and masculinity and our ideas around it, right? If you think about the history of Disney and Pixar, right? Yeah, you know, true. like even Toy Story, <laughs> you know, is the story of two heroic white toys. Um, uh, so I do love that masculinity takes a background and this and the narratives of these women and the incredible resilience, resistance, adaptability of these women's is centered and that men are the supporting characters. Going back to like, I talked about that TED talk where, you know, the danger of a single story and for too long, I think the single story has been presented of This is the narrative around what men and masculinity need. And the diversity of this story, I think, is just beautiful. And even in the sub-stories, I guess, that are present there, too. Yeah. What's... 
Uh, I love it. I love his character. I love actually both of the women's husbands and that they have like acculturated into this family that would be really hard to be a part of because you would be so insufficient (laughs) in so many ways. Um, And they never pull focus from their wives. They listen to them. They're receptive to them. And it's also subtle and lovely. But what a sweet sub narrative to pull out about the role of men in this movie and these husbands. Um, and especially Felix, who does such a lovely job helping to soothe his wife and uh, allowing her. We don't talk about Bruno's song intentionally. She calls him out for sort of interrupting, and he's am like, I'm oh, so sorry. Story. Like, you're just, right, I, it's my, the story, or am I? <laughs> it's my favorite. I love it so much. And he's still in the background, and he's dancing with her. He's so sweet. Describing his wedding day is so lovely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so cute. So fantastic. So if you haven't watched Encanto, please run don't walk but run carefully don't right. trip of course um trip i don't care what you do Get here. <laughs> <laughs> go check out the movie uh bring your kids to it have a discussion afterwards and of course go to tiktok thanks for listening to attached remember call us email us or get at us on all of those social medias about relationship advice you've received and that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on we cannot wait to talk about